We're here in the fifth week of six weeks on Move, how the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. He changes our gaze from downward or inward to upward, and then how he moves us out uh, in ministry. And we see that throughout the Gospels. So this morning we're going to talk about Zacchaeus, and I've preached on Zacchaeus at least three times uh, in my tenure at Hebron. And yet, Again, the power of the Lord and the power of His Word is amazing because what I want to talk about today, in many respects, I've never seen before. It's always been there, but never put it together. I mean, think of this. Jesus is on His way to the cross. He's passing through Jericho, and yet He stops there. And He does something fantastic there, not just for Zacchaeus, but for us. So let's take a look at two passages that Luke put almost back to back. They're just separated by a few verses. Two very familiar stories, first of all from Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Luke chapter 19, our text today, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowds, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The man walks into the doctor's office and he said, Doc, you've got to help me. I've had a severe headache for weeks. I've taken Tylenol, it doesn't work. I've taken Aleve and it doesn't work. I need an MRI, I need a CAT scan, I need steroids, I need something. I can't stand the pain. Can you help me? 
Doctor said, yeah, I think I can, but let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you drink a lot of alcohol? Man says, me drink? It's never touched my lips. The doctor said, did you smoke? Do I smoke? I think that's the worst habit a person can have. Of course I don't smoke. Doctor said, well, one other thing. Do you you run around a lot? I said, doctor, who do you take me for? I'm in bed at 10 o'clock every night. I've never run around in my life. The doctor said, is the pain sharp and shooting? The man said, yeah, it's sharp and shooting. It goes from side to side of my head. Doctor says, I know your problem. You don't need an MRI. You don't need a CAT scan. Your halo's just a little too tight. (laughs) Now that's a problem Zacchaeus never had. In all of the Gospels, there's only one chief tax collector. It's Zacchaeus. In all of the Gospel, there are only two individuals who, who are said to be rich. One is in Luke 18. He's unnamed. Rich ruler. The only one ever mentioned by name who's rich is Zacchaeus. And he's gotten his wealth by playing both sides of the street. He had to have been a tax collector. But by investing his money and by Greasing certain palms, he's become the chief tax collector of the region of Jericho. In the New Testament, there was no more wealthy area than Jericho. 17 miles from Jerusalem, 3,500 feet elevation drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho was in a well-watered valley. It was very bucolic. Very expensive, luxurious. Jericho was the Palm Springs of Palestine. Now, according to Roman law, every district that was occupied by the Romans had a tax base. The indigenous people were required to pay taxes to Rome. Tax was established by Rome a certain amount, but a tax collector could keep any amount over that amount that he chose to. So a tax collector would always overcharge. And a chief tax collector always got a cut of everything that was overcharged. Rome got its dollar. Tax collector got his dollar. Chief tax collector often got Two dollars. So no wonder Zacchaeus is the only man mentioned in the Gospels who's rich. By name. Now it's interesting. Verses earlier, Jesus said to his disciples and all who were hearing him, it's easier for a rich man to... Well, let me say it differently. He said it this way. It's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and he was talking there about a sewing needle. He wasn't talking about a little hole in the wall of Jerusalem that was called the needle. You say, how do you know? 
because a camel may have been able to kneel down and get through that needle in the wall. But what Jesus is saying, it's harder for a camel to go through a sewing needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples understand what he means because they say, how is it possible then for anyone to be saved? It's not just hard, it's impossible. Jesus said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. And here's a perfect example of it. From a biblical perspective, from a spiritual perspective, there is no one more lost than Zacchaeus. Why do I say that? Because he trusted himself implicitly. He had all the money that he would ever need. He had all the security that he could buy. He had all the merchandise he might ever want. And yet, there's one thing that is missing from his life. He has no true friend. He has no one who unconditionally loves him. He is unable to accept being accepted because he isn't accepted by anyone. Last week, about 20 of us went down to West Virginia for the second year in a row. We're the guests of a friend of ours who's 76 years old, lives in Florida, but every year around this time, he emails about 20 of his friends and says, come join me in West Virginia, play golf, eat lunch, all on me. And so we, of course, say, sure. I mean, it's a great course, a good meal. Last year, we ate lunch first and then played golf. I'll never forget what he said. He said, the reason you are here, and some of us didn't even know each other then, but the reason you're here is because you're my friends. You are here because you're my friend. I've lived 75 years, that was last year. I've accomplished almost everything I've wanted to accomplish, but in all of my years I've come to recognize there's one thing more valuable than anything else, and that's the unconditional love of friends. You're my friends, that's why you're here. So we played golf first and then ate lunch, and then when we left... After we had prayed together and talked, a couple of days later, he sent an email to all of us. And the email I received said this, more importantly, now that referred to his first statement, which was, thanks for coming, but more importantly, thank you for your love. It means so much to me because it expands my capacity to love. Now think of that. Think of that statement. Thank you mostly for your love because it expands my capacity to love. Have you ever thought about that? 30 years ago, Henry Nouwen, who was renowned, he's a professor of philosophy and theology. He had taught at Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard, he left Harvard and went to Ontario to a nursing home. Not as a patient, but as a caregiver. He went there to assist those who were dying. He cleaned bedpans. He changed soiled sheets. This guy's a double Ph.D., 
And he's doing the most basic nursing for the most vulnerable in the world. And he wrote about it and he said this, when we honestly ask ourselves which person means the most to us, we find that it is not the one who gives advice, but the one who shares our pain, who touches our wounds with a warm and tender hand. That friend can be silent in the midst of despair and confusion. He or she's the one that stays with us in the moment of grief and bereavement. Who can face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That's a friend who cares. You know what C.S. Lewis said? He said, friendship, true friendship begins when you say, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. Now Luke says Jesus is passing through Jericho. In chapter 17, we know where he's headed. He's headed to Jerusalem to go to the cross. For months, he's resisted going to Jerusalem. Even his own brother said, why don't you go up to the feast? And he wouldn't. But in chapter 17 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, I'm headed to Jerusalem. He tells His disciples for the fourth time, I'm going there to die. Luke says on His way to Jerusalem, He passes along between Samaria and Galilee. In less than a week, Jesus will be nailed to a cross. So what does He do? What does he do on his way to Jerusalem? He stops in Jericho. He was just going to pass through. First verse, chapter 19. He's passing through. But on his way into town, he sees a blind beggar who cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus heals his blindness. And while that's amazing, what's more amazing is what happens when he gets into Jericho. He stops. He stops on his way to the cross. And when he stops, he reveals the in of the gospel, the up of the gospel, and the out of the gospel. He stops in Jericho to save a chief tax collector who's rich. And we see in Zacchaeus a perfect example of what happens when Jesus comes in, redirects our eyes, and He moves us out. So let's dig in. First of all, notice, if you will, the setting. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus entered Jericho. He was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, I would venture to say there's no more famous story, especially to VBS kids, in the Old Testament than the walls of Jericho tumbling down. 1,300 years earlier, A man named Joshua, 
the son of Nun, the assistant to Moses, leads God's people to victory over this town, Jericho. They had major walls. It's the first town that Israel comes to when they enter the promised land. It's the first town that God tells Joshua, I will destroy it. It will become yours. You know what Joshua does after the walls come tumbling down? He pronounces a curse on the city. Listen to what he says. Cursed before the Lord be the one who rebuilds these walls. And yet they were rebuilt. And Luke says Jesus is passing through that town. Do you know what Jesus' name is in Hebrew? Joshua. When the first Joshua comes and the destruction happens, he pronounces a curse. When the second Joshua comes, who is headed to destruction, he pronounces a blessing. Listen to what the Lord said to Joshua, number one. You and the priests and all the people of Israel are to march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, blow your trumpets and issue a shout and the walls will come down. Now that's what most of the VBS kids are taught about Jericho whenever they're doing that story. Remember what happens before the walls come down? There's a woman there who's a prostitute. She's named after a foreign god, Ra, the god of light. Her name is Rahab. Before the walls come down, God saves that prostitute from destruction. Here, before the destruction of the second Joshua, God saves a chief rich tax collector named Zacchaeus. The second Joshua is just like the first. He's come to deliver the people of God from coming destruction. And yet before he is destroyed himself, he saves a rich man named Zacchaeus. Second, notice the search. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was. But on account of the crowds, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him as he was about to pass that way. Now think of Zacchaeus and the difference between Zacchaeus and the blind beggar that Jesus meets on the way into town. The blind beggar is blind. Zacchaeus can see. The beggar is nameless. Zacchaeus is named three times. In ten verses, he's named three times. Do you know how unusual that is? Do you know what's more unusual? That Jesus speaks his name. Zacchaeus, come down. In the whole of the Gospels, Jesus only names a few people by name. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus and his disciples are up north. They're in a place as far north as they ever go. Caesarea, Philippi. 
Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say you're Elijah. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus says to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father in heaven. You will no longer be called Simon. You will be called Petros, and upon this Petra, rock, I will build my church. Jesus renames him. He calls him, instead of Simon, he calls him Peter. He gives him a new name. Because he is going to create in that man a new character. He's going to give him a new heart. Notice here, Jesus doesn't rename Zacchaeus. You know what Zacchaeus means? Pure and righteous. The word righteous means generous. Pure and generous. If ever there were a person who was misnamed, it's Zacchaeus. There's nothing pure about him. He's deceitful. There's nothing generous about him. He is totally self-interested. He's only interested in accumulating his aggregate wealth. He's a shadowy figure. He stays in the background. But what does he do when he knows Jesus is passing through? He makes a spectacle of himself. Men in antiquity never climb trees. Just wasn't done. But he did it. Why? Because he's interested in seeing who Jesus is. Why does he climb the tree? To see Jesus. Why does he want to see Jesus? Because in some sense he longs for something better than he has. Third, notice the sighting. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. On this Father's Day, I challenge every father to read all the Gospels. I know you won't do it. But if you did it, you would find that this is the only place in all of Jesus' ministry where he invites himself anywhere. Jesus never invited himself anywhere, especially to someone's house. Think of what he does here. He preaches no sermon. He heals no leper. He raises no dead person. Instead, what he, the only thing he does is he says, Zacchaeus, come down, hurry down. I must stay at your house today. You know what that adverb must literally means? I am compelled. There's no other place in all the gospel where Jesus says, I am compelled to do this other than my Father's will. He says, get down here, Zacchaeus. Hurry quickly. I am compelled to stay in your house today. Not just come in, but stay there all day. Now let me ask you, why is Jesus obligated to do that? Especially on his way to the cross. 
I mean, he's got big things going. He's going to die. Why? Why? Why does he feel compelled to stay in that man's house? There's only one reason. To make Zacchaeus his friend. You think about this. In less than one week, Jesus will gather around a table with his disciples, a table that he has prepared. And at that table, he will say something to them he's never said at any other time. He will say to them, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Here, less than a week before he does that, he does the same thing with Zacchaeus. He comes into his house. He stays. Now on what basis will he call his disciples friends? On what basis will they be friends? Not on their behavior. He calls them friends based on what he has already illustrated to him at that meal. This is my body. This is my blood. In other words, you're my friends because I'm going to die for you. You are my friends. You know, in all the Bible, never does anyone refer to Jesus as their friend. Jesus says, you're my friend. Why? Because I will pay the price of friendship. That's exactly what he's saying to Zacchaeus. I need to stay in your house because you need to know that I am your friend because I am going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I'm going to make the impossible possible. I am going to divest myself of my life to touch your deepest wound, to heal your greatest longing, to satisfy you in a way that you've never been satisfied before. Fourth and finally, notice the surrender. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, you know, they're at the table eating, so he stands up and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Now, according to Roman law, if a person was discovered to have defrauded anyone, they had to restore the one they defrauded four times what they had taken. A 400% return. But notice here, it's not Jesus who points out his fraud. It's not somebody else in the house. It's Zacchaeus himself. In the presence of Jesus, he comes to recognize that he's a fraud. And he says, I will restore to those that I've defrauded four times what I've taken His own heart makes the discovery. In the presence of the only pure and righteous one, Zacchaeus finds out the truth of himself. I'm a crook. I'm a conniver. I'm a scoundrel. I'm not pure and righteous. He is. And yet notice, he doesn't lead with his guilt. He leads with total surrender, abandonment. He says, I'm willing to voluntarily give up half of my wealth. There was no law that required that. 
Before he gets to the fourfold restoration, he first says, I'm going to take half of my wealth and give it to the poor. Here in the presence of true, costly friendship, in the presence of the one who alone is able to give himself completely to Zacchaeus, generosity breaks out. Do you see this? When Jesus comes in and he redirects his eyes, there's always the out. There's always the moving out. For years, Zacchaeus has chased another god, the god of his own making. Why has he chased it? To cover his own shame. But here in the presence of unconditional love, the chase is over. Here in the presence of a perfect friend, he is, who's willing to stop his journey, to share his pain, to touch his wounds. Do you know how much it costs Jesus to go into the house of a rich chief tax collector? It's greater than Henry Nouwen leaving Harvard to go to a nursing home. And that's not lost on Zacchaeus. If Jesus is willing to divest himself of all of his reputation to come to my house and to stay, I am willing to give up my false God for the only real one. I'm willing to accept that he accepts me. You know why Luke puts the rich young ruler story right before Zacchaeus? Because he knows that there's another rich young ruler who is able to do what the rich young ruler in the Bible can't do. He's able to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the rich young ruler who is willing to give all away. Do you know when Jesus came into Jericho and he saw Zacchaeus? He really didn't just see him in a tree. He saw him through a tree. He saw him through the tree that Jesus would be nailed to. And look what Luke tells us. After Jesus performs the in and the up, what's Zacchaeus do? He begins to see people not as the target of greed, but as the target of love. On the way into Jericho, he sees a man not just in a tree, but through a tree. And Zacchaeus is moved. And the chief tax collector becomes the chief giver in all the New Testament. Who else do you know in the New Testament that gives away half of their wealth and then all of the rest in making restitution? That should come as no surprise. 
Because when real salvation walks into your house, when you know that Jesus is your unconditional friend, you're always moved. You're always moved to give yourself away. Just like that guy we met two weeks ago in West Virginia. Remember what he said? Your love for me expands my love for others. Now, if that's true for him with respect to our love, how much more is that true for you and me with respect to Jesus' love? I mean, all we did was come down and play golf and eat lunch on his dime. Jesus went all the way to the cross for you. And his love for you expands your capacity to love others. Think about that. Amen.